so so tell me a little bit about uh the little man in my head um i think i think i don't, I don't remember when it was i mean this was i mean months and months ago i think i first sort of ran into your blog and i and i added it to my collection um i don't remember if there was any i'm sure i i found it probably through reddit but i i most recently found a, a i think actually no you commented on a reddit post and that's which brought, which brought me back to your site and i said oh yeah this this guy this site uh and so I, and obviously i reached out after that but um yeah, I mean, I guess tell me a little bit about yourself, Scott, and and a little bit about the little man in my head. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a silly photo and a silly blog title, and uh, I started the blog because I thought I had different views than others in security, so I started writing my views. Um, now I have a strong background in cryptography, so I have a lot to say about that and just how bad cryptographic APIs are. And those tend to be my most popular blogs. Uh, and I kind of feel my role now in security is uh, connecting the cryptographic research world with the real development world, because they're really not talking to each other. And this is why we have so many problems in cryptography. So what, what do you think like the biggest if if you had to like point at one thing and say that's that's the biggest issue I see sort of in in development and I guess the cross section of development in crypto, what are you seeing as the biggest issue? So the real problem is the cryptographic APIs are written assuming developers understand crypto, and they don't. And what happens, and especially the older ones, um, Java is probably one of the worst ones because it requires you and, and if you read the JCH of a cryptographic architecture page, they make a clear statement at the beginning that you shouldn't just copy code. You need to be an expert in cryptography to really do it and to understand it. We just give you the tools. And yeah, when Java came out, it was great. 25 years ago or whenever because they gave us cryptography which other languages did not. But the biggest problem is Java cryptography has never evolved and they've never made their APIs easier. And there are so many problems with it. Um, the defaults, if you want to just encrypt something and you don't specify a mode of operation, most likely you're going to get ECB mode which is insecure by default. Um, how to use these uh, APIs. Often people are putting in passwords and strings where they need cryptographic keys and things like that. So Java gives you no help and guidance on how to do this. Um, and other languages evolved and they kind of did a little better, but it wasn't really until Dan Bernstein came around with his, uh, what do you call it, NACL, library or NACL or however people say it, that he put a focus on APIs so that it's really easy to use. You don't have to be a cryptographic expert. Just call this and we'll do everything for you the right way. And that's where new languages need to go. And that's where languages like Java have to change to. And .NET's doing a lot better, but it's still not quite there. .NET's great because it gives you documentation, but 
still some of the defaults are wrong and um, there's, there's, there's still things that could be done a bit better and made a little bit simpler. So, sure, yeah. yeah this is... a, a common phrase I see, and you've probably seen this too, is, is not to not to roll your own crypto, right? And I think that typically means like, don't try to come up with your own, you know, cryptographic algorithm, right? Use something that's out there. But what you're saying is even beyond that, you might not be rolling your own crypto, but if you're just, if you're trying to do crypto with what is provided natively, but you're still doing it incorrectly or by using the defaults, which, uh, you know, is, is also a common issue, right? Just the, the fact that the default not just crypto, but default settings on a lot of different pieces of software is is often not the secure configuration. Uh, you also run into issues. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And uh, a good example of this is many of these things, many of these libraries say you have to choose an initialization vector. And you'd be surprised what people do for this. Now, for most modes of operation, you have to choose that IV. We'll call it IV because I'm not going to say initialization vector every time because I have enough trouble with English. Say it five times um, fast. <laughs> Initial, I can't even do it once. That's hard enough. Yeah. Um, so these IVs most of the time have to be generated with secure randomness, like, uh, yeah, Java secure random or whatever. There's some modes of operation where it do, they do not. But one of the biggest problems I see is people choose an IV and they hard code it and they say, okay, we'll just use this for everything. And no, you can't just choose an IV and fix it. You have to choose a different one every time you re-encrypt. And this has caused lots of problems in cryptography. Um, and we've even seen it. So right now I'm talking about symmetric key cryptography but we could look at public key cryptography. There was a big bug in Sony PlayStation, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, where they chose um, like a random value, not an IV, but a random value that needs to be chosen for, crypt for elliptic curve encryption, and they hard-coded it. And that was a wonderful, wonderful bug from a hacker perspective because it allows you to find the private key if they reuse the same random value twice. And so this is a little different than the um, symmetric key case where you have to choose your IV different because it's, 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 this case here is a lot worse because it's complete disaster. Your, your system's completely broke. Whereas in a symmetric key case, bad things happen, but it tends to require a lot more work to break it. So yeah. Um, cryptography is badly broken in most languages, um, but it's it's improving. And there are a lot of people out there now from the security community that are understanding that the APIs are to blame. What we need is for the languages to kept up, catch up with that understanding. Yeah, um, I think that makes sense. I wish I, so I took a crypto class. Um, I think it was called cryptology, actually, um, in my master's program, and I wish I remembered it half well enough to have an intelligible conversation about crypto with you. But I'll, but I'll, I'll ask you this: um, I think I mean I think I probably am a good example. I don't know where I sit on the spectrum of being a good security person, but I'll say that I think a lot of people like me 
in the security community probably don't understand crypto nearly as well as someone like yourself. And you know, obviously there's a lot of people who are in the AppSec space or the pen testing space. And you know, I, for example, looking at an application or a system and trying to identify flaws. I mean, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit before, well before maybe I even get to crypto, but a lot of what I'll look for is stuff related to secrets management. I mean, I think, right? So, I, and, and that, of course, has a has a very important part to play in, in cryptography, right? You need, you know, you've got to manage the keys somehow. But uh, I know just in our pre-conversation, you mentioned kind of moving away from crypto research into what is the more sort of traditional AppSec space, but I'm sure you being somebody who really understands the the cryptography part of things have brought a lot of that expertise over. So in your day-to-day AppSec profession, what are sort of, what what are like, I mean, you can name as many as you'd like, but what are like the top three things you're looking for in terms of let's make sure crypto is being done good, right? For lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah. Um, so you the what I see most often is symmetric key or hashing, I don't see a lot of asymmetric cryptography. And what happens is, as you mentioned, hard-coded keys, so secret management is not there. The IVs is the other one that I just mentioned. And the third one is hash functions. MD5 is just everywhere. So deprecated. And it is so dead. (laughs) It's been deprecated for more than 20 years. And I just don't like to see it. Let me let me. Uh, Do you think the the, this, the attacks against those deprecated hashing functions are? Do you do you think that those are practical attacks or? Some I mean, I understand are. that it's some, provably broken, right? But yeah, some some of them are. But here here's the thing: is breaking it often requires understand. So breaking its practical use requires understanding what what security properties they need when they use it. And people use it for all sorts of different reasons and they can't articulate what they really need. So for example, they might say, oh, we just need a unique value. Okay, then why are you using MD5? Because MD5 gives you collisions. We know that. So use something else. And yeah, maybe, maybe there's more to it than that because Finding collisions requires the attacker can control all inputs, and and maybe in their case they're in control of their inputs and they don't need that. But the simple problem that they can't articulate what they need from it, and the amount of time we spend discussing it, let's use our time more efficiently. Just use SHA two fifty six and be done with it, right? I that's that's my attitude. I don't like there's too many problems. I don't want to waste a lot of time. Let's just use what is recommended and let's get MD5 away because we're seeing it in way too many places and a lot of times it does matter. Do you think developers have, do you think that they have a reason for picking that or they just, they don't really have the knowledge and they're just, it's available. So they say, I'm going to use this. I don't, I don't, it, what's the problem with it? Or, or is can... it, or is it a conscious decision, right? For performance or whatever, you know, why ever they might choose it. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's a single answer, and we could speculate, and I think you know a lot of people just know it from because they've heard it, and I don't know, maybe it sounds cool, MD5 or whatever. Uh, I, I don't really know the answer, but 
it's something that we have to get rid of. And honestly, the cryptographic community has been trying to for more than 20 years, and it's still everywhere. I see it more than any other hash function. And yeah, uh, sometimes I'm known as the guy who hates MD5. <laughs> you have the shirt. <laughs> I don't. I hate MD5. And, well, and ironically, like I mean, this was invented with by Ron Rivest, whom I've worked with. Right, I'm, I'm kind of know him pretty well, and uh, he doesn't want it around either. He's he's <laughs> insecure. Uh, so uh, yeah, let's 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 get our up to date with what we should be using. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you you mentioned, uh, and I'll, I think I mentioned this earlier, but coming from sort of the more research side of crypto into AppSec. So, and, and I think you said that, what did you say exactly? That had no, you're, I guess, being trapped in the research world had very little uh, real world implication, I think is what you said. But in terms of where crypto is going, I mean, I think a lot of people in the crypto space think of like quantum cryptography, right? That's what's coming. That's the, you know, that's going to blow up, right? The, security of the internet as we know it or cause all these other sorts of attacks and you know china has already figured it out or all these other you know crazy things that people might say but um i guess since again you know probably 10 to 100 times more about crypto than i do uh give me your take on on quantum crypto the you know uh is it really coming what What are the implications (laughs) That's one I'm not going to claim expertise on. And cryptography is a very wide area. And we often hear these buzzwords. People like to ask me about quantum cryptography and they like to ask me about blockchain and stuff like that. And yeah, I I don't know how practical it is. I don't know if it's going to be real or not. What I do know is NIST is making a lot of effort to get new algorithms in the event that this thing does become real. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm not up to date on those changes because I've, I've left cryptography uh, 15 years ago, but one thing that I do run is an event called AppSec Australia where we have online meetups and I'm trying to get a professor who's an expert on this to talk about it in a few months uh, I can't promise that, uh, but we we want to have a general overview without any proofs or theorems or stuff like that that just says, here are the dangers of quantum cryptography, and here's what the crypto community is doing about it. And I know some of those dangers, for example, even your um, online currencies, cryptocurrencies are going to have problems. Uh, we know all the main public key crypto systems that are in use will be broken. And that's why NIST is trying to develop a new standard for that. I don't know what what the finalists are because I haven't followed it because as I said, I left crypto long ago. Um, the, my understanding is the symmetric key algorithms might be okay but we're not really sure. <laughs> we might need to upgrade to bigger key sizes. Um, there's, I think it's called Grover's algorithm, and I could be wrong, where the, the running time is like the cube root of the key size. But for 256-bit keys, which people often use, cube root might be big enough. Uh, we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. So um, 
I'm not going to say too much more than that because, as I said, I'm not the expert, and I'll probably say a lot of things wrong if I haven't <laughs> That's <all right>. already. <laughs> you probably won't. You'll probably say less wrong things than me. I've always been under the impression that, you know, okay, with the advent of something new like quantum crypto, that might turn what is modern day crypto on its head, and yeah. you know, I guess effectively break some things that we rely on across the board that that at the same time as sort of at the inception of that it would also introduce new way you know quantum crypto not only introduces a way to break modern crypto but also a way you know also new crypto that is unbreakable by itself i don't know if that makes sense um but i guess the big issue is that modern crypto is so baked in especially when you think about you know the way the internet works um tls specifically right uh, and if, uh, I guess, asymmetric cryptography is at risk more so than maybe symmetric crypto, then you might have some issues um, around how, like, you know, I guess the Internet, right, functions, right? The ability for, uh, you know, you to communicate securely with other every single thing that's out there on the Internet. So uh, pretty interesting. I, I know in my in my master's program, there was a quantum crypto course, which I didn't take, Um but at least I know there are, there are people out there who are, you know, working on it, trying to teach people about it. Um, but I think uh, much like, well, not much like yourself, but so, but some part like yourself, I did my crypto course and I said, well, that's probably not for me. And I went to AppSec. <laughs> <laughs> it just took me a lot longer to make that decision. <laughs> Uh, I, I really enjoyed crypto when I was doing it, but um, yeah, eventually you want to, I think for me anyway, I wanted to do things that made a difference on a daily basis and I wasn't getting that in crypto. And maybe it's just because I wasn't the best. Who knows? <laughs> so in the, in the AppSec space, um, how would you describe what you do? Yeah, so I actually do quite a lot of different things, um, and it's because I can never settle on one thing. I'm never satisfied on one thing. So when we talk about AppSec, DevSecOps is a big part of it, and everyone has their own ways of doing that, I guess. And yeah, we. Well, that'll be a I, good I'm one. Cool Explain about. DevSecOps. What is your definition? <laughs> what is your definition of? Everybody has one, right? And it's wildly yeah. different, probably, from one person to the next. How would you describe DevSecOps then? Oh, God. You're going to get me on that nah, one. No, you don't no, have to. You don't have to. Do to. <laughs> but I, to me, there's there's more that I want to be doing than that. Uh, and, yeah, let me let me tell you a little a second reason why I started my blog before I return to that question. Sure. Is because uh, when I was looking at AppSec, at least when I started my blog, it was kind of like – OWASP top 10 focused and uh, DevSecOps. But there were other things that I had interest in that I wanted to address in my blog. And now I see OWASP is also starting to take that as well. Like login security and password security and uh, user-friendly designs. Um, look, CAPTCHA is a big thing, right? CAPTCHA was invented 30 years ago or something like that. And it kind of changed once Google created the reCAPTCHA because it was kind of uh, um, 
I don't know. It, it was a little bit of a secret algorithm, I feel, but yeah, maybe I shouldn't say that. Uh, but now Google dominates it, and they haven't made it better. They've made it. <laughs> they've made us click fire hydrants and uh, street signs and 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 things like that, and it it really annoys people. So can we find a better way to protect from bots and things like that? And these are parts of what I'm trying to do and look at in my blog. Look at the research that's out there. And can we actually make this practical and use it? So this is kind of why I say I wanted to present my ideas in a blog, because to me, there's more to AppSec than what I was really getting out of OWASP at the time. Now, having said that, I see OWASP is now starting to embrace some of these things, uh, like passwords and uh, login security. It's not just block an IP address because that, that doesn't work anymore. Things have changed the way the attackers work and we need better ideas. So yeah, I, I like to jump around and do a lot of different things, not just your traditional DevSecOps. Yeah, I did a whole show on, actually on the new OWASP top 10. Um, and, and I think for good reason, um, and I think you sort of keyed on this a little bit, for good reason, they're sort of changing what it, how they're presenting the OWASP top 10 before, at least in my mind, and what I talked about in that show was that, you know, it's it very specific, you know, we're just seeing a lot of this vulnerability. And now I, I feel it's it's more purposefully vague and, and points at these larger categories and things that if you were to address them for your system or application, you know, you're, you're going to get the highest value security improvement. And I think that's the way they're... So instead of saying well, we see a lot of XSS, it's we see a lot of injection flaws, right? So fix fix what it is that causes injection style attacks, right? So your input sanitizations, your, your or, uh, you know, validation, right? Input validation, your output encoding, do these things and you fix multiple categories of issues. You fix injection, right? Versus we see a lot of XSS, right? And, and, for me, OS Top 10 has always been about vulnerabilities and less about, I don't know, these more sort of vague conceptual ideas. I think, I feel like they had uh, the ASVS, which is, I think, built more around, you know, controls and like fixing stuff like, you know, fixing logging, right? Like do logging, do, oh, I mean, what are the other ASVS controls? Do proper authentication, right? And now you have OWASP top 10 that's coming in saying, you know, all authentication flaws, authentication and yep. authorization flaws is something, you know, is in the top three now. So I think it's like this blending. It's like they're sort of stepping on the ASVS space is kind of what I'm getting at. <laughs> so we can look historically at what OWASP top 10 has been. I can't remember when it started, but when the first one that came out was 10 exact vulnerabilities. One of those was buffer overflow. There was SQL injection. There was cross-site scripting and so on. And little by little, they've kind of blended things together. So buffer overflow and SQL injection became injection together. And it was like, oh, we can get more in here this way or something like that. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if that was the real attitude, but no, it's just, you've got nine categories of vulnerabilities and you have SSRF. 
<laughs> so there's one real vulnerability in nine categories. Um, so yeah, they are they are covering more space, and yeah, I think you're right. There's definitely um, kind of an overlap of ASVS, uh, but uh, it'll be interesting, yeah, to see see what happens next. I, I guess I would say. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw. I think I talked about that also in the show, but I think OWASP came out with something saying that they were they were getting rid of the top ten. And then that's when they came out with ASVS. And ASVS was meant to replace the top ten because the top ten was no longer serving the purpose that it that it did for, for you know, a decade or however long it, it was out. Um but I think the OS top ten is just such a known quantity yeah. right and it's baked into I mean I think you mentioned having done a lot of work with SAS tools. It's baked into you know all of these these reports and SAS tools. It's baked in everywhere, right? Map it to the OWASP top ten. So I think they saw it's you know it's too big to fail at this point. So they just decided let's let's make it whatever it needs to be. If even if it doesn't resemble the OWASP top ten from 2017 from 2013, let's let's keep it around. Let's create some other framework. We'll call it the OWASP top ten. It'll be ten things, and you know. We'll keep trying to make security better. <laughs> Mike, let me throw a question at you. Let's do it. If you don't mind. Yeah. If you were to list 10 exact vulnerabilities that you see most frequently, where would you go with those? So specifically things that never seem to go away. It doesn't have to be the most dangerous, but problems that never seem to go away. Yeah, I mean, it would be a lot of the ones that you see in the OWASP top ten for sure. Um, I think the pro that the I think what, and I'll I'll try to answer that question. I mean, I can list some vulnerabilities, but what I think is interesting is if you decided to name specific vulnerabilities, let's say if you if you decompose the OWASP top ten and it was actually, and you looked at like the individual C CWEs, right? It's like forty things. So you sort of do it a disservice when you name the top 10 and then starting at 11, they fall off the map and you no longer care about those things. So I get why OWASP has lumped them together because let's, let's, let's try to get all everything that matters in here. That way there's no high risk vulnerabilities left that fall off that, you know, that, that hit the 11 through 40 mark or whatever it may be. Um, but I mean, certainly with, and, and I, I remember talking about this a little bit in the other show, but certainly with the, with, with, a lot of what you're seeing with microservice architectures and uh, think uh, DevSecOps and and building everything out in the cloud, you get a lot of OAuth related issues. So you get a lot of authentication authorization type flaws. We see um, certainly injection style flaws are still here. Um, they're a lot better. I think they moved down in OAuth top ten, and I would certainly I, I would say that I see them less, um, but I also still see them a lot. Um, Certainly, on the you know, harkening back to the crypto conversation we had, I, I still see secrets management related issues. So, um, you know, I do a bit of manual code review and, and static application security testing as well. And so, I, I see either uh, so uh, passwords or secrets that are available in source code, right? People upload it to GitHub and, and other source repositories and stuff. So, you see. Uh, things exposed that way. There's a couple. I don't. I'm not going to name ten, but but I but I kind of get why those things, why OWASP has lumped them. Yep, 
And I'm, I'm, I, I asked you that question because I wanted to see how much it overlaps with my list. And, and definitely, Hard-Coded Secrets is one of the top ones. So if I were to make my Little Man in the Head top 10, uh, which I'm not going to do, Hard-Coded Secrets is first or second. The other one is Cross-Site Scripting. Still never seems to go away. Uh, those those are the two big ones that, and and then the crypto failures, MD5, choosing your IV wrong, wrong default mode of operation. There's too many crypto problems. So those 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 are probably my my top five. Yeah, but yeah, I was I was really hoping to see hard coded secrets on the new OWASP top ten, but instead. They don't have 10 vulnerabilities. They have nine categories and one vulnerability. Server-side request forgery is the only uh, single vulnerability in there. Yeah. Yeah. So I mentioned I mentioned SAS, and I think you said you were unimpressed with some, with some SAS yes. tooling. So yep. give me an idea what SAS products you've used and, and – <laughs> I I think I've used like I've used I have to what shame I used? vendors. Well, that's all right. I've used all of them, and they all have different bits of shame. Fortify this 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 podcast is not sponsored by anybody, much less any yeah. SaaS vendors. So you're not going to hurt any sponsors for sure. Fortify I've used, check marks I've used, Veracode I've used, um, probably some others. Those are probably the three main ones I use, and each one I think has things I like about it and things that I don't. And across the board, they all sort of suffer from the same thing that most automated scanners suffer from, right? Which is false positives or, uh, you know, things related to the interface that, are, that aren't good and all sorts of other issues. But but give, uh, since, since you mentioned uh, having some issues with, with SAS scanners in general, give me an idea of what you've run into. So how about I, I try to approach this by saying some good things and some bad things. Yeah, for sure. And the, the good thing is having these scanners is better than not having them. Yeah, I've certainly never walked in to an AppSec program and said, let's get these SaaS scanners out of here. They do nothing. They provide no value. Yeah. So I've been in places where they hate these tools so much that they don't want to use them. And yeah, that's, I hate, I hate a lot of these tools as well, but they do offer value, even though there's lots of false positives and all sorts of quirks in the tools, just being able to see all the new potential problems on a weekly basis or however often you want to scan, that's value. And to be able to suppress stuff and say, I don't want to see this again. That's value. These are very good, important parts of tools. And even if the tools are not to our satisfaction, we have to look at the good parts um, and not just get rid of them altogether. But yeah, in terms of the bad parts, and again, I like to look at this historically, these tools were wonderful when, well, I shouldn't say wonderful, but they were more useful when we were all doing these big monoliths because you could see where the input came in, what was done with it, what came out. You saw the whole picture, the source to sync. It had meaning, but most of us don't live in worlds like that now. Most of us live in microsystem worlds. And one of the big problems I see in application security 
programs is that they have a group of people just running tools, scan this part, and they're only looking at the one tiny part with no knowledge of the whole architecture of the system, how data goes in, where it goes from one part to the next, and they might not even understand what the purpose of this part is. They're just looking for something like SQL injection. And uh, if you read Gary McGraw's books, he distinguishes between bugs and flaws. Bugs are things where you don't have to understand anything about what the code does to find the problem. So like SQL injection, we can see that without understanding anything about the software, whereas flaw is more business logic type design. So people in AppSec programs often use these tools just to find the bugs and they rely on the architects to solve the architectural problems, but these people don't always talk together. And this is, at least in Australia, I see it is a big problem in the way AppSec is done. Um, so yeah, uh, I think these tools are less useful in a microservices world because we don't have the complete picture. We don't, the source to sync is only looking at one small part and we don't really understand it. We need to really understand the applications to use our tools in the best way. Um, so that's, that's, I think, something that needs to change, the way we work with these tools. So yeah, uh, you specifically asked about what's wrong with the tools and look, false positives is the biggest problem because the tools are trying to solve all problems because historically that's what we did and we got a lot out of these tools. But nowadays, when we're looking at microservices, these tools are a lot yet less useful. And we can mainly find things like, oh, this guy's logging sensitive data or doing crypto wrong or stuff like that. But if it's not uh, doing something like returning data to the user, cross-site scripting is not exactly an issue uh, because you shouldn't solve it there. You should solve it where it's displayed to the user, for example. So yeah, I think the problem is the tools, um, they're, they're not evolving to the way we work with microservices. Uh, again, scan one component and not looking at the whole big picture together. So what, and this could be a tool, this could be a activity, this could be a framework, whatever it is. In your mind, where can you get the most value performing what I'll call, I'll call it modern AppSec, but AppSec against systems that are built with modern architectures. So they might, you know, the micros, there might be microservice-based architectures that are built in the cloud. They're built, they're containerized microservice architectures in the cloud where, you know, traditional tooling, traditional activities either fail or are otherwise less effective. Where, where from, if, if you're putting together an AppSec program from scratch, what are you doing Right, you might you might institute all of these things still in some in some small way, right? And you might rely on them a little bit less or, or differently than you used to. But in your mind, where are you getting the most value? For yeah, outside? so that's 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 a great question because it's it's really a hard problem. It's becoming harder. It is definitely becoming harder. Um, Which is why we, we have jobs, need... right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we still need we still need these tools, but we also need uh, processes where. Uh, architects and AppSec people are working together um, and we we also need more tools because tools like SAST are becoming less effective with microservices uh, 
So tools like desk can make up the difference, but we need good desk tools. And I haven't used a good commercial desk tool. And I think uh, the one that we all use, the free one, the Zap is good, but it, it, needs, it needs more rules in it. So we definitely need better desk. We need SAST. We need software composition analysis. We need bug bounties because we're not going to catch it all. To me, the big one that I am valuing the most these days is the security education. Because when we teach developers the right way to do things, suddenly we say, oh, these tools aren't working. Why are my tools not working? They're not finding anything. Why am I wasting my money on these tools? And that's when you realize you did something right because you've taught your developers the right way to code. Uh, to me, that's I've seen it happen at my previous employment. I greatly value these education tools. That's like the ultimate shift left, right? I mean, if the developers are doing security for you, then you've shifted it as about as far left as you can, right? Yeah. Are you familiar with the movie Inception? I don't know. Sorry. No? Okay. You tell me. Well, Inception, the whole concept of Inception is to make someone there's – there's an entire movie. I forget who the who directed it, but like Leonardo DiCaprio is in it. But it's a, So it's a, big, it's a big blockbuster movie, but the whole concept of Inception is – they go into the dreams of people and convince them to to think something or to do something, and then they wake up thinking that it's their idea. So if you can incept developers to want to do security and to do it correctly, uh, then that's the ultimate shift left. Um, so that would be my idea. If we can create if, – if some company out there, uh, you know, Checkmarks, was to come out with a tool that can incept developers – that's a billion dollar idea right there. Maybe a trillion dollar idea would fix it. Would fix AppSec overnight, I think. Literally, because they would wake up and they would do it. They would, uh, they would do everything perfectly. Uh, but yeah, so so, uh, so developer education. Um, I mean, there's a number of different ways, right? That that people are trying to tackle this problem. Uh, I mentioned Checkmarks a few times. Checkmarks has their code bashing. Um, I don't know if yeah. you've used that platform, um, but you know, it's effectively it's just it's practical training, right? They go through these exercises and they learn how to fix you know common issues for you know injection style attacks or whatever it may be do you think that i mean in in your mind these things exist and maybe for the development orgs that have had the luxury of having access to this for some time they're seeing noticeable gains in the number of flaws that are being produced because they are coding things securely from the beginning um, but I, I'm sure I don't know if the research exists that can prove one thing or the other. But in your mind, what's what's, and maybe in your experience, I guess, what's the best way to educate developers to to you know, either get them on board with security, but b educate them in how to do secure coding. Yeah. Look, honestly, uh, there's there's a lot of tools out there. If you want to be successful, you you've got to make it fun. You've got to make it fun for the developers. You've got to incentivize it. You've got to give rewards. I, I really like the way Secure Code Warrior turns it into a competition. Uh, we've, I've seen that work quite successfully, but it's not just using their platform. You have to support that at your company. You have to have the awards. You have to run these tournaments, and they, 
they, they take a lot of time if you're going to do it well. It's something, it doesn't run by itself. You have to, you have to support the platform, come up with prizes, encourage developers to do it, reward it, give them recognition. The other thing is being able to reward your developers for finding problems internally. If somebody finds some internal problem, give them recognition, let them present to the whole company or, or to other developers and reward them for doing that. So make them part of the security program. Don't, don't, don't treat it as we're teaching them. Let them be part of us. And this whole security champions idea works in that way. The other thing that I've done that I've had a lot of success with is just having like monthly security education seminars. And I did this at my previous company for four years. It was all voluntary. But when you make it fun, people come to it. And it doesn't also hurt to have some like uh, chocolates or whatever else Pizza, when they come yeah. to see this. Yeah, but what I've found is a lot of people were interested in it if you made it fun and make it interactive. Make it so they it's not just you talking to them. Let them talk to you as well. Let them give you ideas. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love doing that. I loved uh, teaching people how to hack. I love OWASP 2Shop. I don't know if you played with that, Mike. It's such a fun website to learn hacking on. It's quite modern. And showing them that, teaching them how to use that, how to do that. And all of a sudden, you know, they understanding how the hackers are working and what the hackers are doing. They don't make the same mistakes. Uh, I don't think this is just uh, coincidence. I think that all these education pieces working together and making it fun and encouraging them, it's all working together. So at, at my last company, I left there and was like, you know, why did we waste money on these expensive SaaS tools that were they not finding anything? It's not true. They were finding things, but only for the people that weren't being educated. <laughs> we found a lot of problems for, for these uh, code bases that were not, uh, they were in small departments where developers were not in touch. But those that were going through the education program, it's we were finding very little, very little problems with them. So yeah, I, I really think it works. Uh, just make it fun. Don't just rely on one thing like Secure Code Warrior or code bashing. Those those are useful, but bring in more to it. And again, it's you're working with them. It's got to be a positive relationship. Building positive relationship with developers is very important in succeeding. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, and though I don't have the evidential experience, I have at multiple places now uh propose the and, and and i guess in the in the uh the process of trying to mature or build an appsec program and as part of that program define and establish a security champions function i have and there's you know multiple different ways to do appsec multiple different ways to do any different component of appsec um but in in part of trying to do a security champions i've thrown out various different ways to institute this concept of incentivizing developers whether it be you know some sort of internal bug bounty or 
you know, whoever raises their hand and says, I'll be the security champion for this team, you know, give them money, like whatever it is, however you incentivize, however you think you can do it, do it. And I've, I've run into, I guess what we'll call it executive roadblocks, managerial roadblocks around how to, you know, how to prove, you know, without, without evidence and hand saying, I know this is going to work and this is where I've seen it work other places. Uh, it's, I've, I personally have found it hard to, to get that off the ground. So let me ask you, have you, do you have any tricks or things that you've seen for convincing leadership or executive, whatever to, 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 you know, I guess have an, an incentivized security champions or incentivized, you know, program for, for having developers learn security, sort of getting that off the ground. Look, that, that's a great topic that I, I hope you can find someone who is, who can talk on it. Um, I've been in a similar situation as you. Uh, I can, I've, I've not been able to get the management uh, support, I would say, to actually get it off the ground because I often had to work from a bottom-up grassroots way of educating developers. I was not able to talk to engineering management to get to the buy-in because they didn't have time for a, a, a little guy like me. They needed to hear from a high-level manager. And we've we've designed the programs. Uh, we, we tried to recruit the people, but at the end of the day, we needed the engineering support in the buy-in to make it work. I don't I don't know, I have not been in a position to make that work yet. And I would love to hear someone who has, if you can, if you can bring in somebody uh, who's been able to make it. I know there's, there's some nice blogs by those guys at Snowflake about how they did their security partnership. It's a really good read. But to me, yeah, maybe you just have to have the right management to make that work. I do not know the answer. Yeah, I think sometimes too, it's, you know, it's, and I, I can't say I've done this myself, uh, but, you know, kind of the walk, you know, crawl, walk, run, right? Get 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 a little something off the ground and slowly build your way to a more fully fledged, you know, you've got internal bug bounties and you've got hackathons and you have all these cool things that you have, you know, you've sort of asserted, you know, engages developers and gets them interested in security and then at the same time teaches them and makes them become you know, secure coders. And, and when you have developers who are producing secure code, all of your tools that are, you know, further down, you know, the SDLC are finding less things. And eventually, uh, and, and as we know, to find things as you go further to the right is more expensive, right? It's more expensive to do pen testing. It's more expensive to do DAST and triage all the findings and run the DAST tooling. It's more expensive to even run SAS and it becomes le- less and less expensive the, the further left you go. And if you had this cool utopian AppSec environment where developers are just engaging in cool hackathons and taking training and doing brown bags and just producing secure code as they went, right? You, you'd have a, a much more effective AppSec program and probably a lot cheaper. It'd be security is, would be less of a cost center, right? And that's sort of the ideal world. Um, I will say anecdotally uh, that the developers, and this has been, I would say, very <clears throat> a sampling of the developers I've worked with, but of the ones who we have been able to, of, of the particular teams or, or individual developers that we've engaged that have been very interested in security and who we've sort of been able to sell the idea of security and the you know 
doing the cool things and incentivizing them, those teams have, in, in, in my experience, actually produced more secure code. We're finding less things with, with the tools. So, um, and it, it might, that might be a correlation that is, yeah, certainly if you have a developer who cares more about security, they'll produce more secure code. The real question is, can you take developers who are eh, about security and teach them and then they also become better uh, is, is sort of the real question. But I think there's some evidence there. Um, the, I guess the real question is, rather than you know force everyone to love security, it's make security more fun so that you don't have to have this inherent love for it. I think, I think we're, yeah, that's, that's beautiful way of saying it. That's, that's what it's all about. If you can make it fun, they will come. <laughs> that's, that's the goal here. Um, it, it, it'll work. Yeah. I mean, it, and the worst, the thing I hate the most is when, when you hear security people saying something like, Oh, those guys are dumb. They don't know what they're doing. And it's like, no, these, these are all smart people. They're developers. They know how to program speak to them respectfully just because they don't have the knowledge that you have does not mean they're dumb. Let's, we have to learn from them. They have to learn from us. It's got to go both directions and it has to be a respectful conversation. And on our side, the more we can do to make it fun and entertaining, the more buy-in we're going to get. I think this is a big part of winning. And again, it's like you say, all anecdotally, we, we, I, I haven't, I don't know how to measure it, I've just seen it work. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I totally agree. I, I think when I first started in security, there was, I remember, I forget, somebody like a more, a more senior member of the security team was explaining to me, like right before we were going into a meeting with some developers, he was like, okay, what you need to know about this is, you know, we, the security team and the developers do not have a great relationship. And it's gonna. It, it might be contentious in there, and there might be some back and forth. And that was sort of my. This was very early days, and like my my very impressionable days of security. And I I think my my first sort of interaction was, you know, even though I was sort of just in the background, and it from the beginning it sort of made me think that that's the way it was. Security was just the obstacle. We were the no people. We were the you know guys who the developers didn't like. And I remember walking away from that not thinking, well, this is the way it is. I, I sort of took the opposite mindset, which is this isn't the way it has to be. And I think the, the common mindset nowadays is, is just that too. You know, it's, it's all about a partnership and working together and all this stuff. Uh, but I, you know, I, I always thought that was very interesting how, you know, I forget this individual's name, but and not that I would say it here, but how they were just like, this is, you know, this is going to be a fight as we go in here and we're going to have to tell them they can't do this. Uh, I always just thought was funny. Um, but now, yeah, of course, now if you're, if you're an AppSec, of course, sometimes you still have to say no, but or I guess you find a better way to say no. Um, but it's not about saying no, right? It's about saying, you know, sort of putting yourself in their shoes and, and trying to, you know, explain if you have a, a particular position, um, I don't think no is ever probably the right way to go about things. Yeah. Uh, let, let me add to that is we, we as AppSec people need to, and I know it's hard to scale, but to sit down with developers and say, how about doing it this way instead? Or maybe, maybe I have to refer back to your inception uh, movie, make it their idea on how to do it the right way. Just kind of give them the pointers. So 
once they think they have the right, the good idea, and it's the right idea, let's let's guide them. Let's let's be there to review the code for them if they need, you know, a pull request. The the big problem with what I'm saying is scaling scaling this. But if you start doing those, you're going to build better relationships, and it's going to help they're going to become more interested in security. And if you can get the security education program really fun, it, it's all going to come together. So, yeah, we don't just want to say no. We want to say no. How about doing it this way or just at least point them in the right direction? And it it, it should become easier the more you get. So I'm, I'm mainly speaking for my previous company. The, the more we had success, working with developers, the more they embrace the security and the less problems we saw. It, I was really amazed how far we went in four years. And it was still a very small AppSec program, but the education side, the working with developers, um, it, it, and giving them solutions that would work for them, uh, it really made a difference. And, and I'll give you an example of that. Um, so prior to me being there, we had a password policy of having to use uppercase, lowercase, special characters, passwords, having to never uh, reuse a password, rotate your password and all this crap, which is all known to be bad advice nowadays. If you look at the new NIST guidelines, I kind of got there ahead of time because I've been reading the research prior to these NIST guidelines coming out about how to do password security. I said, guys, forget that, forget that, here's what we're going to do instead. <laughs> and said, so, you know, just blacklist common passwords, make it at least eight characters, but we're going to add some extra protections. We're going to put in something like, oh, if you're coming from a different device, a device you have not logged in from before, then we're going to make you do 2FA, but we're not going to make you do it any other time. So once you log into that device, we're going to we're going to put a little token on it that lets us know you've logged into it from to that device before and that we're not going to bother you. And I had to convince up to the most senior levels of management, here's a friendly way to do security. It's your business is going to accept it. Your customers are going to like it. And we're not going to have to deal with this credential stuffing crap anymore. And it worked. It worked. And we got it in and we rolled it out to more than 10 million people. And yeah, we, we solved a problem in a friendly way. Traditional security way of doing password security was rotating passwords, com, com, password composition rules. No, that's that's not that's not friendly way. We we got to find friendlier ways to work with developers, friendlier ways solutions that are good for users too. That's got to be part of our solution. Yeah, I think friendly security is uh, probably a vastly there should be there, there should be people who are called like security friendliness engineers and that's like all they do. That I that would be actually a really cool job title I think. But I, I totally agree. I mean, in places where you see security that is unfriendly, you see a lot of developers and other IT or or you know, managers or whoever circumventing that security, right? Mm -hmm. Either through exceptions or through other means. Um, but you also see just, just bad habits in general when security is, is, is made to be unfriendly. I mean, I think you see that with passwords. 
Certainly. I mean, pastors is a, good, is a very good example. You know, people tend to make very uh, insecure passwords when they have to rotate it every six months. Yes. And it becomes very annoying. The passwords don't get more secure. And you don't gain that much security because what do you get when passwords are rotated? What 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 value was that meant? Was that even meant to provide to begin with? It, yeah. Right. So. Friend, yeah. So the, security the research friendliness there engineer. shows that um, when 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 you force people to rotate passwords, they do it in predictable ways. They go from super secure password twelve to super secure password thirteen. That's like sixty percent of the people will do that. And there's other little. I, tricks I like don't that. do that. I certainly don't. Do that. <laughs> So it's 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 just a, um, a security protection that's failed, mainly because we've assumed that the users would do what we want them to do, uh, and instead they don't because they they have password overload, they have too many passwords, and they don't want to be locked out of their system. So, yeah, on, on our side, on security side, we have to understand the problems that developers are facing and that users are facing, and that has to be part of our solutions and to, to tie this all together from the beginning I was saying I had different ideas than what I was seeing in security and that's why I created my blog uh, to put those ideas out there um, and I've got a lot of those ideas on there and now they, some of the ideas that I wrote about long ago are not so unusual anymore so I, I feel I've made progress but the truth is I'm one small voice out of millions of bloggers. What we need is lots of people that speak out for better security solutions. It's not just OWASP, it's the bloggers, it's the podcasts, it's things like that. We all have to be looking at this together and, and finding solutions that are friendly to users, friendly to developers, and acceptable to security. And then, then we're making success. Yeah, absolutely. You're one small voice and then an extra small voice that comes out of the top. Of <laughs> so a small, but then like, yeah. And then an even smaller voice. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I yeah. Can't agree more. Um, do you have any interesting, uh, research you're, you're working on now? Um, not really. So yeah, I started at Atlassian almost three months ago and Ever since doing it, I've never been in a company like this that has really been overwhelming, like learn a billion things before I can really do anything. And it sort of caused me to drop what I was doing. And actually, I, I was starting some stuff, but um, I, 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 I've let it go. Uh, but one of the things I was doing is, um, I'll just tell you that even though I, I let it go, it was, uh, there's, there's lots of open source secret scanners looking for secrets in code repositories, but they're mm -hmm. all very noisy. Truffle hog. Truffle hog, right? Uh, though they just made a new tool that's actually pretty good because it checks for RSA keys that are in use uh, somewhere so something like that. So I was actually building a tool that would scan a push request and uh, look for any new code that introduces a secret. Then it would verify the secret. Is this a valid secret or not by hitting an API endpoint that lets us know if it's a valid secret. And if it is, it would leave a comment on the push within seconds to the developer right where the secret was left saying, you have 
put a secret in here. This is a violation. Here's the reason why you shouldn't do it. Uh, and so this is an internal uh, tool that would sort of heart, like it would instrument these push requests. Yeah. So what it, it works on webhooks, and it's essentially on GitHub. It's uh, called HCSS, High Confidence Security Scanner. Uh, so as soon as yeah you you have your organization, you set up webhooks that catch all pushes to GitHub or Bitbucket, or the two. Um, providers we were supporting and we would scan scan the code as soon as there's a push and leave a comment so the developer would get the response within seconds um but we we only supported two secrets so far that was the next phase because we just built the basic architecture mm -hmm. um we were going to add a lot more support for that and yeah it is an open source project but i'm i don't have the time for it now because i'm just overwhelmed by my new company this is I'm, I'm completely crushed by the amount of information. And as you know, we haven't mentioned the magic word, so I'll say it now. Log4j is killing us. Um, yeah. not, not in the sense that we're vulnerable, but in the sense that we're checking everything because it's changing day on day. There's, a, there's now the third vulnerability that came out yesterday. I think there's four J. now. I just, I've been seeing four? it. Yeah, there's, like a, there's a fourth one related to... Um... Oh, what was, it? What was the one? Uh, there, yeah, I forget, I forget now. But I, yeah, this is going to keep coming, and then the exploit kits and the warmable exploits. And yeah, it's only going to get worse. I actually said it like a, when this first came out, like a day after it came out, I was in a chat with some, as as we all have been in security about Log4j, and I said this is just the this is the tip of the iceberg. More vulnerabilities are going to come out. Blood is in the water. People are going to be ripping you know these components apart anything related to this and they're going to be finding all sorts of things um and that you know in that same vulnerable libraries and more vulnerabilities are going to come out and it's only been what a week plus yeah. a week and a day since it came out and and certainly that's that started to happen i mean who would who would think that you should pen test pen test a logging library who in their right mind would write a logging library that takes user input and makes a request to some remote site because it's We've, we found this string in it. This is just insane. And I, I think you're exactly on the money. Uh, we Three or four vulnerabilities have just come out and there's going to be more. And it's it's required a lot of time from us. And Alassian on the website has their review of it. So I'm not going to say anything more about it. I'm not authorized to speak about it. But we are spending a lot of time looking at uh, our software Every time there's a new one and we're working very late hours and we have a marketplace. So we have people building apps that might be vulnerable and we have to look at that as well. So it's it's really chaos. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's it's internet wide, right? And it <laughs> the, the the size and scale of it. I I think it's the I mean somebody from uh CISA, right? Was saying that maybe like the top person sees was saying that it's this is likely to be if not if it isn't already the worst vulnerability that they've ever seen yeah well in, I was in the history of internet vulnerabilities like the worst thing i was having that discussion with uh some people lately and we came up with four vulnerable well i came up with four but i said one is overrated i think heartbleed is overrated uh the reason why i say that is because I've, I've found a vulnerable box, vulnerable box uh, on OSCP when I was doing it. I never completed it, but I was found one, and I was scanning it for secrets, and I couldn't find it any secrets. <laughs> Full day of scanning it, but 
shell shock. Here are my three: shell shock, log four J, and the old old Morris worm that was created with uh, the Unix systems. Those three. Uh, would you would you put eternal blue in there? Prevalent. Yeah. Would you put eternal so, blue? The uh, Microsoft. Eternal blue. Yeah. Somebody mentioned that one, and honestly, the only reason why I didn't put that on my list, I don't know it well enough. I really don't know that one well enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from a from a damage done perspective, at a minimum, um, certainly a lot of chaos happened, right, with WannaCry and the and the ransomware, uh, wormable ransomware. So, yeah, I definitely think Log4j is in there. Um, but yeah, and it's it's I still think very early days uh, for for all the bad things that are going to come out with Log4j. I I myself am in the uh, among many other things that I do in the vendor security, third-party security space, and uh, not too long ago, when solar when the Solar Winds incident happened, one of the sh- you know the threads that we pulled or that was pulled by the team that I'm now on, um, and that is pulled by third-party security teams across the globe is reaching out to your your you know, all the third parties that you work with, especially, especially any high value um, or high sensitivity vendors and asking them what they're doing about, you know, do they have, you know, Orion, do they have solar winds? And similarly now I'm sure a lot of third party security teams are trying to reach out and figure out what their vendors, what their partners are doing related to log4j. And I recently saw a tweet and it was like, please, Anyone who is in a third-party security function at their at their you know within their application security team or whatever, stop reaching, stop sending questionnaires to your vendors. Everyone has the exact same response right now. Yes, we're affected. Yes, we're trying to fix it. <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, I think SolarWinds is a little different, so I wouldn't I wouldn't compare them apples to apples. But yes, I, log for I, I don't. You would you'd be hard pressed to find an organization that wasn't either directly affected or or you know secondhand being affected because they partner or or use a piece of software that that uses it or or something so yeah i mean it's everyone's fixing it everyone's working on it everyone's aware of it that's the biggest thing is maybe with solar winds maybe you hadn't heard of it right off the bat but at this point if you're if you work in security right every organization on the planet's heard of the log4j issue and is trying to address it best they can yeah no, I agree. This this is one of the worst ones ever, and uh, um, we're addressing it. And I'm, I just hope this doesn't go through Christmas. <laughs> so, so, last thing I'll ask you, Scott. So, prior to Log4j, and not talking about vulnerabilities specifically, and you don't have to name names or or badmouth any companies you used to work for or or any individual person. But what's what, what would you say the worst security? thing that you've ever seen is you can make it vague <laughs> what's the worst what's like the thing that you saw and you were like that that is terrible that's the worst that is the worst security thing i've possibly seen all right so i i will not be so vague uh at my previous company i took a lot of pride how far we went in four years because uh, I, I told you about at the end we were not finding any problems with the tools but at the beginning it was just problems everywhere um and I just remember being pulled into an incident's response issue where, oh, somebody's 
accessing from a single IP, they're accessing hundreds of gift cards because gift cards is one thing we sold. And what can we do? What can we do? And I was like, well, I'm AppSec. I'm not uh, I'm, IR. Yeah. yeah, I'm not IR. I don't do that. But let me have a look at the code. And they didn't want to show the code. And um, uh, the first thing that comes to mind, if this is happening, it must be SQL injection or something like that. In the end, it wasn't. But yeah, uh, when I did look at the code, there were a bunch of SQL injection vulnerabilities, but there were so many problems with this website that it was just unbelievable. For example, you could you you go to the website and order a gift card and say, I want this gift card to be $400, okay? I'll order a second gift card. This one I'll make negative $400. And the total price was $0, right? So uh, I get one $400 and the other thing, it's meaningless to me. It's, I just get something free, that's all I care about. And working with the, the, the person that was ahead of the group there, he said, no, I don't want to fix this vulnerability. And I don't want to fix the SQL injection. And all these madness things, I, I couldn't believe I was hearing. He says, you haven't proved you could exploit this. You didn't do the checkout yet because we have a third-party service that looks at our systems to, to see if there's something bad happening. It's like, well, why would you not write two lines of code that says if price is less than zero, then reject? Um, instead, we have to pen test this until we can exploit the third-party service. This this is not how you do security. So I, I was really in shock when I came to that company and saw the mentality. But um, it, it didn't take long before things changed and, and they had to be taken by the hand and shown the right way. Um, I was I was really proud how far we went uh, because that type of stuff went away after about six months and it was it was really needing new blood and we're refreshing and it's due to a culture of security being the enemy they just didn't trust security at all but once you started to work with them friendly it, it got a lot better so yeah that that was quite shocking to me to see that there were people like that that wouldn't want to fi fix a SQL injection they wouldn't want to fix simple vulnerabilities like being able to enter a negative number in the, <laughs> you had to use Burke or an intersecting proxy to do that because the, the UI would stop it, but it, it was easy to bypass. Yeah. So right. That, that was amazing. Yeah. yeah. I think Amazon, very <laughs> early days of Amazon, they had a very similar issue where you could, you know, very trivially bypass the client side controls, right. To, to modify the price of things that you were buying. Um, yeah. Of course I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that whoever was, uh, uh, you know, in, in a managerial position on the development side of Amazon probably didn't have, maybe, 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 I don't know. I didn't work at Amazon. This is just, you know, a story that I heard, uh, didn't have the same pushback that, that you experienced, but certainly, certainly that sounds pretty atrocious. Um, a little, little input validation, a little service side validation, little, uh, <clears throat> defense in depth seem to seem to be needed there for sure. Yeah. All right, Scott. Well, yeah. uh, do you have any other any other things you want to chat any chat about? Uh, I'll just talk about? I'll, I'll just say thank you uh, for having me, and it's it's been really fun talking to you. I see we have a lot of uh, similar thoughts, and uh, I'll continue to watch your podcast. I, I think it's great. So thank you so much. Yeah, appreciate it, Scott. And and for 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 everyone or anyone who listens, I don't know the five people out there who listen. Scott's, uh, and I'll put this in the show notes, but Scott's blog, littlemaninmyhead.wordpress.com. 
Have you thought about buying the domain? Can you buy that domain? Little man in my head. Just go little man in my head. Yeah. com. Maybe I should do that before somebody else does. Well, now everyone's <laughs> going to do it. Don't you have some time before I finish? Uh, I don't, I don't edit immediately. So, um, yeah. but yeah, maybe somebody goes out there and, uh, <laughs> puts their stake in the ground, makes you, makes you pay them for it. <laughs> what do you call it? I'm blanking on the name. Uh, uh the, the, I don't know why I domain, can't think of it. Subdomain takeover or something? That's uh, like dangling. domain camping or something. What is it? Oh, domain squatting. Sitting. Domain squatting. squatting. Nailed it. How many AppSec pros domain does it take squatting. to think of the name domain <laughs> squatting? Uh, all right. It's Saturday, okay? I'm, I'm technically off the clock. We both are. Um, as off the clock as you can be when the log 4Js of the world are wreaking havoc. <laughs> 